Do you believe that everyone was created for worship? What kind of activities do you believe accurately depict worship? Do you think that you are susceptible to idolatrous worship? If not, why? Welcome to Every Last Word, a radio and internet program with Dr. Philip Ryken, teaching the whole Bible to change your whole life. Today, we continue our verse-by-verse study in the book of Jeremiah by looking at the last documented message of Jeremiah, the Old Testament prophet. Well, in today's message, we see Jeremiah preaching against Israel's wickedness once again. This time, Jeremiah preached against Israel's commitment to the Queen of Heaven, a Gentile goddess. Are there any queens of heaven in our day? Well, I think there are, Mark. You know, in those days, people worshipped idols of wood and stone. In in Jeremiah's time, they were particularly worshipping the goddess Asherah. But, you know, even in our day, people are tempted to worship, for example, an ideal of feminine beauty, to worship sexual images of women, as would be true in the case of pornography. And I would also say, this may be controversial for some of our listeners, Mark, but I also think that people are really in danger of this kind of worship when they give to Mary, the mother of Jesus, the unbiblical title, Queen of Heaven, which is not a title given to her in Scripture. We need to be very careful not to worship any of the goddesses of our own day. Well, since the queen we're talking about was not really a god, where would you say she came from? Well, you know, it's an interesting thing, Mark. If you look at the Bible, whenever the Bible talks about gods and goddesses or about idols, on the one hand, it says, you know, these aren't gods at all. There's nothing there to worship. But on the other hand, the Bible also speaks about demonic principalities and powers that are behind the things that people worship. And so we could answer that question a couple different ways. I mean, really, a lot of the gods and goddesses we worship just come out of our own hearts. You know, John Calvin, the great reformer, said that the human heart is a factory for making idols. And so often we give ourselves over to the things that we choose to worship rather than devoting all of our love and worship to Jesus Christ. Well, thank you, Phil. Now let's open our Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 44 to hear God's word for us today. The 44th chapter of the book of Jeremiah contains the last recorded words of this prophet. And if you've noticed that we still have some seven or eight chapters to go, this may come as a surprise. Chapter 45 is a word from the Lord to Baruch. And then chapters 46 through 51 are words of prophecy to the nations that were spoken several decades earlier. And then chapter 52 is an appendix to the book which was not written or spoken by Jeremiah himself. And so this chapter contains the last recorded words of Jeremiah. And it is, therefore, a good place to recount the many sufferings of the weeping prophet. He was ignored and rejected. He was beaten, imprisoned, and put in the stocks. He was tortured and put down into the dungeon. Several times they attempted to execute him. And finally, Jeremiah's devotion for the people of God sent him down to Egypt into exile, to the land of the Sphinx and the pyramids. And he must have lived there for some years because by the time that he utters the first verse of this chapter, the Jews had scattered into many parts of Egypt. 
And F.B. Myers suggests that Jeremiah's sojourn in Egypt partook of the same infinite sadness as the 40 years of his public ministry. As far as his outward lot was concerned, the prophet Jeremiah spent a life of more unrelieved sadness than has perhaps fallen to the lot of any other with the exception of Jesus Christ. This was so apparent to the Jewish commentators on Isaiah that they applied to him the words of the 53rd chapter, which tell of the story of the man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief. And of course, in the light of Calvary, we see the depths of substitutionary suffering which no mortal could ever realize But it is nevertheless significant that in any sense these words were deemed applicable to Jeremiah. So, F.B. Meyer. Jeremiah was not the suffering servant, but he was a suffering servant to the very end. The words that we find in chapter 44 provide a fitting close to his ministry because it shows him doing what he did best, preaching the holy justice of God against sin. He begins by reminding the people of something they could never forget, the disaster God brought on Jerusalem, which now lies deserted and in ruins because of the evil they have done. Jeremiah's words must have brought back all of the nightmares of the fall of Jerusalem, the defeat at the hand of the Babylonians. And surely the refugees could never forget that experience, and yet... What they had trouble remembering was why these things had come to pass. So beginning in verse 3, Jeremiah reminds them that they were defeated because of the evil they had done. They provoked me to anger by worshiping other gods. Again and again I sent my servants the prophets who said, Do not do this detestable thing that I hate. But they did not listen. They did not stop burning incense to other gods, and therefore my fierce anger was poured out on the streets of Jerusalem. These verses are a summary of the whole Old Testament. The Jews never learned the mistakes of the past, and so they were doomed to repeat them over and over again. They kept ignoring the prophets that God sent to them, until finally Judah and Jerusalem lay in ruins. Now, surely after all of that, finally they would learn their lesson. But they are in danger of forgetting. They are going right back into their former sins. And so God asks them a series of questions. Verses 7 through 10, Why bring such great disaster on yourselves? Why provoke me to anger with what your hands have made? Have you forgotten the wickedness committed by your fathers? To this day they have not humbled themselves or shown reverence. The remnant of the Jews had no remorse for sin and no reverence for God, and so all their suffering was in vain because it did not teach them how to obey. And before becoming overly critical of the remnant of the Jews, it is well for us to consider all of the times that you have repeated the same sins. All of the times that God has taught you a lesson which you have subsequently forgotten. Now, as you know, Jeremiah has preached this kind of sermon before. But there are several themes in chapter 44 which are new. And the first is 
that goddess worship is a very great sin. Idolatry is a theme that Jeremiah has addressed many times before. He's compared worshiping a false god to going and drinking out of a second cistern. He has said that a false idol has no more reality or substance than a scarecrow in the melon patch. But he has not yet spoken to this great detail about goddess worship. And that is what the Jews who went down to Egypt loved to do. We will burn incense to the Queen of Heaven and will pour out drink offerings to her, just as we did in the streets of Jerusalem. They would rather worship the Queen of Heaven than to serve the King of the Universe. Now, the Queen of Heaven was not an Egyptian goddess. She was a goddess of Canaan and Assyria and Babylon, and how ironic and how perverse it is that the Jews should go down into Egypt running for their very lives from the Babylonians, and then turn around and worship the goddess of Babylon. The Queen of Heaven went by different names according to the different dialects. She was called Anat. She was called Asherah and Ashtoreth and Ishtar, which is where we get the name for Easter. And she was worshipped, as these verses explain, with the burning of incense and the pouring of libations and the sacrifice of animals and the baking of little cakes in her image. In fact, archaeologists have discovered some of the baking molds that were used in those days in the shape of this goddess. Now, goddess worship may sound very strange to our ears, but it is becoming more and more fashionable. And I suppose it is true that in every historical era there are feminine forms of idolatry as well as masculine forms of idolatry. And so it is well for Christians in this age to ask, what are the goddesses of this age? Well, first of all, I would say there is Mary, the mother of Jesus. And I refer, of course, to the veneration of the Madonna in the Roman Catholic Church. Pope John Paul II, for example, speaks of Mary as the mother in whom we trust. He prays, You are the woman promised in Eden, the woman chosen from eternity to be the mother of the Word, the mother of divine wisdom, the mother of the Son of God. Hail, Mother of God. And worshiping Mary in this way is not a harmless addition to the Christian faith. It is rank pagan idolatry. It is as wicked as it was for the Jews to worship the Queen of Heaven. In fact, Queen of Heaven is one of the titles sometimes given to Mary. As I was riding to the airport this afternoon, on my way back to Philadelphia, I saw an enormous billboard saying, Madonna Queen, advertising an enormous 35-foot statue of Mary, sort of a shrine near Boston. Now, Mary was a good and godly woman. And the humility of her servant's heart is an example for every believer. In submission to the will of God, she became the mother of Jesus Christ. But she is not the mother of God. She is not the co-redemptrix, as she is sometimes called, as if she had an equal role in salvation to the Lord Jesus himself. She is neither more nor less than a sinner saved by grace. So we find in the first chapter of Acts 
that when the Christians gathered in an upper room to praise God, they all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. These first Christians were giving praise to God and to His Son, Jesus Christ. They were not praising Mary, for that would have been goddess worship. Instead, they were joining with Mary in her own praise of Christ for her salvation. Another goddess of this age, I wonder if you have heard of her, is Sophia, which is the Greek word for wisdom. She is becoming increasingly popular in radical feminist theology. In their quest to discover feminine motifs in the Bible, some liberal Protestants have noticed that Proverbs describes wisdom as a woman. Proverbs 1, verse 20, wisdom calls aloud in the street, she raises her voice in the public squares. And instead of recognizing that this is a literary device to personify the virtue of wisdom, they have claimed wisdom as a goddess. And so, for example, during the 1990s, women from several Protestant denominations gathered to sing praises to Sophia, even to make up their own unholy sacraments in her name. Our Maker, Sophia, our Mother, Sophia, we are women in your image, they sang. And I believe this is the logical consequence of feminist theology in its radical form, the worship of a female god. And other goddesses could be mentioned. There is Wicca, the witch goddess. She, too, is rising in her popularity. There is always Aphrodite, the goddess of sex. And it may be the case that none of these goddesses clamor for your worship. But what about that goddess Glamour? She is a goddess who is universally adored. Consider the billions of dollars spent to promote glamour in the newspapers and in the magazines and on the television commercials. We have to wear the right shoes and the right clothes and the right perfume and the right jewels and accessories. The reason that shopping has become America's number one hobby is because glamour is queen. What does the Bible say about glamour? It says, dress modestly, with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Modern Christians hear these instructions, and many of us secretly hope that God doesn't really mean it. Modesty? Propriety? No gold or designer labels? But notice how the command ends. This is for women who profess to worship God. And, of course, it can be applied also to men who profess to worship God. You see, this is all about worship. The danger with the latest hairstyle and the shiniest jewelry and the fanciest dress is that you will start worshiping the goddess of glamour or of fashion or of beauty or someone or something besides God himself. The point of giving these examples is to show that the warnings of Jeremiah 44 apply to the contemporary Christian. It's tempting for us to read about idolatry in the Old Testament and think, who would ever do that? Well, if you take a look at Western culture and perhaps also if you 
take a look at yourself, you will see that there is a very great danger of pulling the king down from the throne and dethroning him in the name of some goddess. God alone is king. God alone rules over heaven and earth. God alone rules over the universe. And he is the God who made beauty and wisdom, who made women in his image, who made Mary to be his handmaid. Because God is the one who has given all of these gifts, he alone deserves all of our worship and our praise. One of the things we learn from idolatry is that we are made to worship. And if we do not worship the king of kings, we must worship some other god or goddess. That is the very way that we were made. And one of the things we learn from Jeremiah 44 is that this is true for families as well as for individuals. And this brings us to a second lesson. For better or for worse, families worship together. You see, the devotion of the Jews for the Queen of Heaven was a family affair. The husbands knew what their wives were doing. They are described as all the men who knew that their wives were burning incense to other gods, verse 15. The husbands knew, and the wives knew that they knew. Verse 19, the women added, when we burned incense to the Queen of Heaven, did not our husbands know? that we were making cakes like her image and pouring out drink offerings to her. And you see, idolatry was killing the soul of these families. The husbands failed to show spiritual leadership within the home. They were not strong to serve their king. And the wives, for their part, were leading their families into goddess worship. They were devoted to their queen, and as a result, surely they were raising children who were learning to love the queen rather than to serve the king alone. You know, the same thing happened back in Jerusalem. Back in chapter 7, God said to Jeremiah, don't you see what they are doing in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers light the fire, and the women knead the dough and make cakes of bread for the Queen of Heaven. It's almost a charming picture. It sounds like a family camping trip. Goddess worship had become a family tradition. Remember those little cakes that Mama used to bake? I used to love the way that she used to pour the batter into the mold and then bake them in the shape of the Queen of Heaven. You see, this is the way families were made to operate, together as a unit, joining together in their worship. Worship starts at the ends of the mother's apron strings. It begins in the kitchen. Values are shared and learned around the family dinner table, which the Puritans like to call the family altar. And this is why every godly family must meet together regularly for prayer and for Bible study. Families should discuss the sermon and the Sunday school lesson on the way home from church. They should sing hymns and spiritual songs. They should memorize scripture and perhaps also the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And of course, it is in order to promote this kind of family worship that we now publish a family worship bulletin. It's intended, first of all, to help children during the worship service to follow along with the service, but then there is also an insert which gives lessons based on the sermon from the previous week. And then on Saturday night, there is a Bible reading from the sermon passage for the next morning. 
At the back of the insert there is one of the hymns for the following week so that the children can begin to learn the hymnody of the church. And I encourage not only families to use this, but I think it would be a wonderful thing for singles in the church and for others to use for their own worship to strengthen their appreciation and grasp of the week-by-week sermon teaching of the church. Now, that's one way for families to worship together. That's not the only way. All that family worship really takes is a Bible and a firm commitment to the spiritual health of your family. It's worth pausing to ask this evening what spiritual traditions you are establishing for your children. Will they remember the Bible verses that they memorized over breakfast? Will they remember your joy on the morning of the Lord's day as you approached the Lord's house for worship? Will they remember as I can remember the passionate prayers of their grandparents. Will they remember the songs of salvation that they learned at bedtime? This question is especially for those of us who are fathers. For worship is the father's particular responsibility. In fact, the women in Egypt understood that. Their excuse for worshiping the Queen of Heaven, you see it in verse 19, was that our husbands knew what we were doing. I believe in this verse that they were appealing to Numbers chapter 30, where the Bible teaches about vows. And if a wife made a foolish vow, her husband had the spiritual authority to overrule it. And that is exactly what should have happened down in Egypt. The women had made a vow to worship the Queen of Heaven, and it was a sinful vow, and yet the husbands had done nothing about it. Thus, the guilt for the sin rested upon the husbands every bit as much as it rested upon the wives. Fathers, you are responsible for the spiritual health and worship of your family. And that is why we fathers must be such men of repentance and fasting and prayer. You know, there was something very good and right about so many men gathering in Washington yesterday to commit their hearts to their families and to make a renewed commitment to the worship of the family and to pray for the work of the Holy Spirit in their homes. For families were made to worship together. And in this chapter, we also see the terrible consequence that comes when families do not worship the king. And this is our third lesson, and it is simply that sin is self-destructive. The remnant of the Jews hardly understood what they were doing to themselves. They were so blind that they thought that goddess worship was good for them. And as they reminisce about the good old days when they used to worship the Queen of Heaven in Jerusalem, they claim that they never had any troubles, that all of the troubles that they have had since have come because they have stopped worshiping the goddess. At that time, we had plenty of food and were well off and suffered no harm. But ever since we stopped burning incense to the Queen of Heaven, we have had nothing. And so you see, they were arguing with God that goddess worship worked. And that is what we often say about our idols and about the sins of our hearts, that they work well, that they bring us success or happiness or that they make us feel good. 
And so, as these Jews thought, we think things are fine until we stop clinging to our idols, and then that's when the trouble comes. That is what the Jews did in the days of Jeremiah. They believed that the reason they were in exile is because they had forsaken their queen, and yet the reality is just the opposite. Goddess worship is what has destroyed them. The entire reason that they are in Egypt is because of their sin. As we read in verses 20 through 23, Jeremiah said, Did not the Lord remember the incense burned in the streets of Jerusalem? Because you have sinned against the Lord and have not obeyed Him, this disaster has come upon you as you now see. Except that they didn't see. They were so blind to their own sin and to the consequences of sin that they could not see that it was their own sin which had brought this trouble. And this is the great danger of doing what works instead of doing what is right. In the end, every sin is self-destructive. If you live for yourself, you will destroy yourself in the end. And so, although it may feel good at the time to be angry, anger leads to bitterness and destroys the soul. It may seem at the time like Greed is a great way to get a lot of money, but in the end it will destroy all contentment. It may seem at the time that sexual sin brings pleasure, but of course it destroys the possibility of sexual intimacy. And so on, we could go. Sin destroys the soul. It destroys our relationships with one another. It destroys our relationship with God. And in the end, every sin recoils to devour the sinner. It was so true in the case of the Jews who went down to Egypt. It's true that they were judged by God for their sin, but notice the way that their sins are described, their wounds are described as self-inflicted. Verse 7, why bring such great disaster on yourselves? Verse 8, you will destroy yourselves and make yourselves an object of reproach. Sin has such a powerful hold on the sinner that sinners sometimes see that they are destroying themselves and yet find themselves powerless to escape sin. And apparently that is what had happened to the people of God in these days. There is something very sad about the way that they responded to Jeremiah's warning. The husband said, Jeremiah, about this uh, word from the Lord or whatever it is, we will not listen to the message you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord. And for their part, the wives made a vow in defiance to God. We will certainly carry out the vows we made to burn incense to the Queen of Heaven. And perhaps this was the only vow that they actually kept. For the patience of God finally came to an end. In effect, what he says in verses 25 through 27 is, Have it your way. Make your covenant with the Queen of Heaven. But then know that you will bring upon yourself all of the curses of the covenant. Go ahead then and do what you promised. But hear the word of the Lord. I am watching over them for harm, not for good. This is a strong warning to anyone who is living in rebellious sin. It's a strong warning to everyone who recognizes that his or her sin is bringing destruction 
Perhaps you can see it. Perhaps you understand and know that sin is self-destructive. And if that is the case, you must repent for your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and throw yourself on his mercy so that he might bring by the power of his spirit some deliverance for your sin, offering you forgiveness and freedom from sin. Otherwise, if you insist on continuing in sin, in the end, God will let you have your own way. And this is what C.S. Lewis writes, There are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, Thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done, with all of the consequences of judgment. And if we know our own hearts and the bondage of sin, we may well ask, is there any hope for sinners? We can see from this chapter that God is perfectly within his rights to condemn his people altogether. And yet in the very end, he remembered his covenant and saved a very few of them. We find it in verse 14. None of the remnant of Judah who have gone to live in Egypt will escape. None will return except a few fugitives. Not even a remnant will remain, just a remnant of a remnant chosen by grace. And the purpose for God preserving that remnant was to testify and to make sure that everyone understood that he is the king and that there is no queen. Verse 28, at the close of the chapter, we read that those who escape and return to Judah will be very few, and then the whole remnant of Judah who came to live in Egypt, will know whose word will stand, mine or theirs. It is God's word against their word, the king against the queen. And in the end, the remnant will prove the kingly justice of God and prove the royal grace that he has for sinners. You know, this remnant was so small, it is hard to say that this chapter had a happy ending. And humanly speaking, Jeremiah's life did not have a happy ending. His ministry ended as it began with words of judgment. Like nearly all the rest of his prophecies, these final words of judgment were largely ignored. In rabbinic tradition, it is held that Jeremiah was stoned by the Jews in Egypt And perhaps this is why Hebrews chapter 11, verse 37, speaks of some of the prophets having been stoned. Would you say that Jeremiah was a failure? If we judge him by the standards of the world, we might say that his ministry was a failure. We judge it by what works rather than judging it by what is right. He failed to turn back the tide of idolatry in his generation. And yet if we measure success by faithfulness to God's call, then Jeremiah was a great success. He was faithful to the word of God to the very end of his sufferings. And then there is another sense in which the ministry of Jeremiah was a very great success. In fact, if you know Jesus Christ, then there is a sense in which you are the happy ending to the life and ministry of Jeremiah. The Apostle Peter tells how the prophets of the Old Testament longed for the coming of Jesus Christ. Concerning this salvation, the prophets searched intently and with greatest care, 
trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And we have come to know Jeremiah in a most intimate way. And our affection for him becomes all the deeper when we realize that he suffered all these things for us. By the Spirit of God, he understood that his rejections and his mockings and beatings and imprisonments were for the benefit of God's people in centuries to come. What message would inspire a man to search the Scriptures with such great care? What message would inspire a man to suffer for 40 or for 50 or for 60 years just to deliver that message? What message could possibly be so important that Jeremiah would suffer these things, not for himself, but for the sake of others whom he did not even know? Of course, the answer is that the only message worth such suffering is the message of salvation in Jesus Christ. Only the message of forgiveness of sins through the death and resurrection of Christ deserved such great commitment. Jeremiah's saving message has come to you at such great cost, at the cost of his life, at the cost of the lives of the prophets and of the apostles, and of course, most of all, at the cost of the life of Jesus Christ himself. And if the message has come to you at such great cost, should you not receive it and believe it and prize it above all other things? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we give you praise for the words of Scripture which convict our hearts of sin, and we give you praise for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ which cleanses us from all sin. And we give you praise that by your great providence this message has come to us. And we give you praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to Every Last Word, a ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, featuring the Bible teaching of Dr. Philip Graham Ryken. We appreciate your ongoing support of this broadcast ministry. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades, even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. The Alliance also produces the radio broadcasts The Bible Study Hour, featuring the teaching of the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, and Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, featuring the Bible teaching of the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. For a full list of radio stations carrying our programs, please visit our website at www.alliancenet.org. Every Last Word continues through your generous gifts and financial support. If you would like to see this program continue to benefit others as it has benefited you, please prayerfully consider becoming a friend of the Alliance. For more information or to make a contribution, please contact us by calling toll-free 1-800-488-1888. 
You can also send us a gift by writing to Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at www.alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to Every Last Word.